would please look in Colossians chapter 1. This is where we will begin our reading this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And we will attempt to complete this portion of Colossians this morning, this first chapter. We'll begin reading in verse 21 and read through the remaining verses as we've done over the past several weeks. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the dispensation of God, which is you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me my Now, in prayer together again. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you might give us your discernment of the Spirit of God as we study your word, not only in this place this morning together, but Lord, as we individually would study your word each day. We pray that we might have wisdom from you and understanding as only you can provide it. As you promised, you've given us your spirit that he might guide us and teach us into all truth. So Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we do so with a desire, Lord, to have an understanding, not only for the sake of knowledge, but Lord, to live according to the truth that is before us. As Paul has declared and set the example throughout your word of the importance of the stewardship and ministry of the gospel. We pray, Father, that we might as well have an understanding of the same. And Lord, may we live our lives in a manner submitting unto you in which you are pleased and honored and glorified. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Within the final verses of Colossians chapter 1, we have discovered that Paul the timeless mystery which God had now manifested, that which had been hidden. And as we observe this mystery, there are several truths which we have considered and which need to continue to be considered. Uh, and, and again, many of these we've examined already in the previous studies of this portion of the text of Colossians chapter 1. First, we begin with uh, reviewing the previous truths from this passage concerning the wonder of the mystery. There is a wonder to well, the meaning of the word mystery, as I've shared with you many times, is something not understood or something that is beyond understanding. So the mystery is not something that was hidden in the sense of that it had never been declared or it had never been made known, but rather it was something that had been consistently declared throughout the Scriptures, and yet it was not understood. 
to whom it was declared. And we saw this mystery was hidden in verse 26. Uh, Paul says, the and from generations. This mystery had been declared throughout the Old Testament. We won't go through all the verses again. We read them to you some time back a couple of weeks ago. And we also... But also, we saw where they were explained within the New Testament. So not only did the Old Testament declare these truths, and it was hidden, but it was explained and, and expounded upon in the, in the New Testament. So in Deuteronomy 32.21, we find... In Isaiah 65.1, we find... And Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Now, there are corresponding verses within the New Testament, as I mentioned last week and read to you the week prior, in the New Testament that expound and explain these truths as they are declared in the Old Testament. Second, not only the mystery was hidden, but the mystery has been manifested. Verse 26, Paul, but now is made manifest to his saints. The mystery has now been clearly revealed, for it is Jesus who is the revelation. The mystery is part of the eternal purpose of God, which he purposed in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.11, Paul writes to the Ephesians very similar in a very similar manner and tone as he does to the church at Colossae. And he says to them in chapter 3, verse 11, regarding this mystery, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that which he purposed in Christ Jesus is referring to the mystery, which is the gospel to the Gentiles, as declared throughout the Old Testament. But then we see, second, the glory of this mystery. Verse 27, to say, Colossians chapter 1, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Important truths within this statement that we need to recognize. First, the mystery is revealed to the Gentiles, but is revealed among the Gentiles, the scripture says. This mystery says among the Gentiles. So this is important because I shared with you, it's not just something that has been proclaimed or declared to the Gentiles, but it is something that God has demonstrated and manifested among the Gentiles. And so this is very important to recognize and understand. Number two, God would make the riches glory of this mystery known among the Gentiles. So God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. Again, it's not simply that God declared something to the Gentiles, but that he has now manifested and demonstrated among the Gentiles, not only the mystery that existed from ages past, eternal purpose, which he eternally purposed in Christ Jesus, but more importantly, he says he would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. So now he's talking about the riches the depths of the beauty and the glory of this mystery. The, the mystery is that God would not only reveal this mystery to the Gentiles or the beauty and glory of this, but again, it's the glory of the mystery itself. As he goes on to say, as we asked the question a few weeks back, what are the riches of the glory of this mystery? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 20, Christ in you, the hope or confidence of glory. And I, I mentioned before that the very basis of our entire existence rests in this truth, Christ in you. Spiritually speaking, it's Christ in you. Now, we have physical life, but God gave us physical life. But we're talking about our spiritual existence is resting solely, dependently upon this glorious truth of the mystery and the revelation of this mystery. And the beauty and glory of the mystery is simply this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word hope here is that word elpis, or confidence, and so it's the confidence of 
glory. Now, when we speak of the confidence of glory, I again mentioned last week to you, we often limit that to eternity or heaven itself. And that is part of this. But let us be mindful as well of what Paul said, as I read to you last week in Corinthians, where often the verse that's mentioned, I hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that love him. But the next verse says, many people limit that to heaven. Oh, so we can't imagine what heaven must be like. And truthfully, we can't. Yet, the next verse, verse 10, I believe it is in Corinthians, Paul then says, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. The deep things of God have been revealed by the Spirit of God. So Paul there is not referring to eternity in heaven. He's referring to the life of the believer, that Christ is in you. This is the beauty, and this is the glorious mystery, which has been hidden from the ages, which is now manifested that Jesus Christ is living and dwelling in us. And specifically to the Gentiles, to we who are Gentile believers, to the saints now, those who've been called out by God. So today, and this is interesting, I just happened to take note of this. I was sharing with my wife, and I even looked back in our Genesis study. I, I just want to mention, in Genesis, we spent 192 studies in Genesis, plus a little, going verse by verse through the book, which was a phenomenal study. It truly was. And I forgot exactly how many weeks we were in that first chapter, but it wasn't an excessively large amount of time that we spent there. But today, after 20 weeks of studies, which is the longest I've ever spent within the first chapter of any book. <laughs> After 20 weeks of studies, we will conclude, Lord willing, chapter 1 of Colossians. And so this has been a lengthy study through this first chapter, which I was not intentionally meaning for it to be, but it has been. And as Paul concluded this portion of his explanation of this great mystery, he further elaborated upon his commitment to the responsibility that the Lord had given him concerning this us to the final statements of Paul within verses 28 and 29, the two final verses of this chapter, first chapter of Colossians. And it deals with the stewardship of the mystery. Look at verses 28 and 29 again with me. We'll read them. Whom we preach, Paul says, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, last week I mentioned to you Paul's commitment to his part in the revelation of this mystery, which was unparalleled. His commitment was unparalleled. That Christ be revealed to every man. Look at whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now the verb preach here simply literally means proclaim. So Paul is saying we proclaim. He's not talking about standing in a pulpit. He's not talking about holding some religious meeting per se. He's talking about we proclaim to all the mystery of this gospel, the mystery which is hid from the ages. And who was Paul sent to? Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Specifically, he was an apostle to the Gentiles. And he's saying we proclaim to all men, not the Jews, only, but we proclaim to all the glory of this mystery which is in you, all saints, Christ in you, the confidence of glory. Not just in itself, but the glory of having a relationship with God the Father. Remember, Jesus did not die 
suffer and die and rise again simply for you to go to heaven. But he died, suffered, died, and rose again to restore you to a relationship with the Heavenly Father that Adam and Eve had sinned and totally ruined. So we focus so much on eternity, which should have eternal perspective of even this life. But the glory is not simply, as I was saying a moment earlier, let me conclude that, finish that now. The glory is not simply that one day I'll be in heaven. Listen, let me say it to you like this. And and this is maybe not be the... I want to articulate this a little more, so I'll make a statement, then I'll go back to it. But if you are only excited as a professing believer in Jesus Christ of a life that exists beyond this present life, we know if that's the only thing that excites you and brings you joy, then I would question the existence of your spiritual life right now altogether. Because as a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the joy and the peace and the love of God that has been given to us in the only way it could be, which is in the, His Son, our Lord Jesus. And remember something, too, just a side note here. When you look at passages that deal with any detail about heaven itself, eternity, that which we will enter into, the focus is never, ever on the place. It's always on the presence of the person of Jesus. Whether it be Revelation speaking of He is the Lamb and the light of the glory thereof. He is the light of heaven itself. Or to be absent from the body is to be in heaven. No, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in every case you find that when the scriptures are referencing heaven and eternity, the emphasis, there may be description given, there may be great description given in greater detail in some passages more so than others. But in every single case, the emphasis is on Christ and the Father, and being in the presence of Christ and the Father. And it's about the redemption we've received. And if you don't understand the joy of that right now, then you really have nothing to be excited about concerning that which is to come, because it's not, heaven is not. Heaven will not be what you desire for it to be in your physical, fleshly mind and carnal thoughts. Heaven will be us in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. And if you cannot rejoice about Christ in you right now, the hope of glory, then you will not rejoice about being with Christ. I've often said to you, one of the the beauties and joys of walking with Christ in this life is this eternal truth. As long as I am breathing air in this life, Christ is with me. And the moment I step into eternity, I will be with him. Either way, it's all about him. Both ways, (laughs) whether I live, whether I die, it's all about Jesus. It's not about anything else. And so we see Paul in this this stewardship of the gospel. The the verb preach meaning, again, proclaim. He's saying, I proclaim to all men, to every man. And Paul was committed to remain impartial concerning his stewardship of proclaiming the gospel. In each of the three statements Paul made in this chapter concerning his responsibility, he does so referring to his responsibility to every man. Now this is including, again, emphasizing the Gentiles because prior they had been pretty much excluded from God's purpose as it was revealed. He says, first of all, warn every man. Notice in the verse, verse 28, teach every man and then present every man perfect in Christ. So Paul's inclusion of every man. Now let us understand something going back to the beginning of As an overview of Colossians, 
Paul's inclusion of every man has a direct correlation to the Gnosticism of the day that existed. Paul was facing the growing opposition of those who would deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is and was and is the Son of God, or that he is God in the flesh, or was God in the flesh, due to the Gnostic teaching that all matter is sinful. Gnosticism taught that anything physical is sinful, all matter is sinful. Now, we that not all matter is sinful, all matter is under the curse of sin, but Jesus manifested himself in the flesh, which was not sinful. Our flesh is sinful. His was not. And so all matter is not sinful in that respect, and that was part of the Gnostic teaching and belief. Jesus, therefore, they would claim or believe, could not have come in the flesh, could not have been truly the Son of God in the flesh, since all flesh is or all matter is sinful. Now, we know all flesh is sinful apart from that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, born not of the seed of man, but born of the Holy Spirit through Mary. We know He is literally flesh, but yet not sinful flesh. He is the second Adam. He is the the last Adam, unlike the first Adam. So each area of Paul's commitment regarding this mystery of the gospel is significant in a specific manner. And we understand that, that with this Gnostic belief that Jesus could not have literally been in the flesh because of sinful flesh or that he really was not the Son of God in the flesh, we also, Gnosticism further propagated the idea that men could only know God through a mystical revelation. And the importance of that is that if that were true, then Jesus... Being manifest in the flesh means absolutely nothing because men can know God through some mystical God manifesting the truth of his presence and person in the Son. This is important that we, we acknowledge this and that we, we recognize this, understand this truth. As I mentioned, each area of Paul's commitment, as he mentions it, is significant in its own manner. First of all, he says, warn every man. The verb warn means admonish, and the, to admonish is to firmly reprimand. And as I've said to you many times, the gospel, the good news by definition, is preceded by very bad news. One of the ways in which men today have perverted the gospel, they go out telling everyone this ideology that, oh, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Well, then why worry about anything? If I'm loved of God as I am, just as I am right now, then everything should be fine. And so you find that this idea, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, excludes the bad news that brings, that makes God's love for us in Christ the good news. <laughs> bad news is simply this one universal truth that every man is under the wrath and condemnation of God. And that there is nothing that man can do to rectify his condition. The warning of God's judgment is to be proclaimed to all men because all men are in the same condition. John three seventeen and 18. Everyone loves verse 16 and never read verse 16. Let's just not read verse 16 and let's read verses 17 and 18 remembering verse 16. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, wait, there it is. So God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. See, God, God so loved the world, he didn't condemn the world. Wait a minute, but it doesn't end there. But that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not, say it with me, is condemned already. 
He's already under this condemnation. This is the bad news. Jesus didn't come to condemn man. The law condemns man. But yet Jesus came to redeem man that is already condemned under the law and by the declaration of the righteousness of God. Because he, he's condemned. Why is he condemned? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Romans 2.12 For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And he's talking about the Gentiles here specifically. So those, because remember in Romans, Paul is talking about Gentile, Jews and Gentiles. That, that's, he's talking about, it, it's the gospel being explained, but it's part of this mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's, he's making sense of this to both Jew and Gentile alike concerning this mystery of God, which is the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, referring to the Gentiles. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law, talking about the Jews. Remember, Galatians teaches us it's the priests, or Romans, the, the, the law and the oracles of God and the, the prophets were sent not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. They were given the law of God throughout the Old Testament. Romans three nineteen and 20. I'm sorry, 19 through 23. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world becomes guilty. All men are under condemnation. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, by faithfulness of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Here it is again saying there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between those who are in unbelief. If you're a Jew in unbelief or you're a Gentile in unbelief, you're all condemned. And then he goes on to say, for there is no difference. Verse 23, you know this verse. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jew and Gentile alike. There's a condemnation that men are under. So the responsibility of the stewardship of the gospel was given to, war, to Paul to warn every man, Jew and Gentile alike, specifically the Gentiles, to admonish every man, to firmly reprimand every man sin concerning his guilt and his condemnation before a holy, righteous, just, and faithful God. It's no wonder Paul would say to proclaim and preach, to warn every man. Why does every man need to be warned? Will every man be saved? need to be warned because regardless of whether he will be saved or not he is under the same judgment and condemnation of god this is bad news again the gospel is offensive if people would just read their bible they would understand that jesus explains that he is the rock of offense right he's a stumbling block that the gospel is offensive we're not supposed to attempt to make the gospel appealing or pleasant they're the truth of the gospel and the bad good news else the good news really is not good news at all to those who hear it this has been often said let me give you an example of that quickly uh if if you for instance if i had some if i had some magic pill in my car that would cure all cancer and i brought it to you and said hey man i've got this pill isn't that great and it cures all cancer and you may say well yeah that that that's good but guess what if you don't understand at that moment, or if you're not aware of, or if you're one who doesn't possess or have the disease of cancer, then you're like, oh, that's good. Yeah, that, that's, that's wonderful that you had that, whether I believe it or not. Yeah, okay, whatever. But you kind of just dismiss it because, 
okay, that's good for people who need it, right? But I don't need this. But when you understand that you are at the point of death and tomorrow you will die and there's nothing else that can be done for you and all of a sudden someone shows up saying, hey, I've got this thing that cures you, you'll probably take it no matter because you understand I am dying, I am desperate, and here's my condition. Let me tell you what we've done. We've tried to convince people who are under the condemnation of God that God loves them and they're fine and everything's good, so just continue as you are, you know, and won't you just accept Jesus mentality? Listen. No, everything's not fine, everything is not good, and you're not okay. You are under the wrath of a holy God, under condemnation, waiting to be revealed in the righteous day of judgment. And unless you, and until you understand that, you will continue to look at the gospel as good news for someone else. But never see it for what it really is, the good news of Jesus Christ. To every man. Because every man is under this same condemnation, and under this judgment of God. Second, Paul says, teach every man. He's talking about himself. He warns every man. He teaches every man. And all this is part of the gospel, by the way. Hello. Isn't that interesting? To admonish and warn, to teach, is all part of the gospel he is proclaiming to all men. He said the verb teacher, of course, means to instruct. And I've often stated that correction without instruction leads to rebellion. Let's go back to the gospel for a minute. We can also relate this to our own childhood maybe, or if you have children, or raising your own children. Correction without instruction leads to rebellion. If someone comes to me as a child, if I would have been approached and just told, don't do this, this is wrong, instructed beyond that, you know what I want to do? I want to do what's wrong. Why? Because I have a sinful nature. Think about the gospel for a moment. If I go and tell everyone, you're under the condemnation of God, and there's nothing you can do to fix it, well, what do you think they're going to do? They're just going to say, well, I'm going to dive in deeper since I'm in this hole already. I might as well enjoy every moment of life I can, selfishly, as much as I can, to my own benefit, to my good, and then just perish and die in the end. And what is what is what is. Right? So correction without instruction leads to rebellion. But here Paul says not only to admonish, to correct, but to instruct, to teach. So if it, it, what good would it be to that men were under if there's no instruction concerning God's provision for man. Now, teaching every man was not Paul telling men how they could better themselves. That's not teaching. But rather, it was commanding men to obey or to respond properly to the gospel. The scriptures explain that there are those who have not obeyed the gospel. And that sounds like a, a very odd statement. Obey the gospel? What is the gospel? It's the good news. Well, how do you obey the gospel? What does that mean? By the way, fundamentally, foundationally, um, for your own children, let me say this to you, and, and, and I want to, let me pause and digress for just a moment to make the point a little more clear, maybe. Many so-called Sunday schools, Sunday school lessons, whatever else, I'm talking about for children specifically, and even adults probably, but specifically, you know, it tells stories about Old Testament characters and things that happen in their lives, or even New Testament and things that happen, and in the modern day, 21st century era of the church, especially in America, what that's resulted in is no more than morality, and teaching moral lessons. Like, for instance, making a statement such as this. Well, okay, so Jonah, let's go to Jonah for a moment. Jonah, God told him to do something, and he didn't do it, and God was not happy. Think about this for a moment. But then Jonah did what God told him to do, and God was happy with that, right? So in other words, if we, if we, listen to, if we, if we follow the, the teaching of Scripture and all the do's and don'ts and laws of God's Word, then God's happy, isn't he? No, he's not. What are we to obey? the gospel. And what does the gospel teach us? That we can't help ourselves. 
So it's not morality, help yourself get better. It's a recognition, there's nothing I can do to fix this situation I am in and the condemnation I am under. So how do you obey the gospel? Well, let's look and see what Paul says about this and what the scriptures teach us about those who obey not the gospel. 10, 11 through 17, it's quite a lengthy verse, but let me read it. I'm also going to reference two Old Testament passages which are quoted within this verse, just to give you the reference. For the scripture saith, Isaiah 28, 16 is where that's found. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over, over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Joel 2.32 For whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Without one proclaiming. And how shall they proclaim except they be sent? As it is written. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things, the gospel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, or Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Understand, obeyed in this verse means to hear and to heed. It's not something you're actively doing as some outward formal motion. It's saying they've not obeyed the gospel, meaning they've not heard and or they've not heeded the gospel. Let me say this to you. Many, many people who hear the gospel do not heed the gospel. Therefore, they are not in obedience to the gospel. To hear and to learn and not obey and not heed is useless and worthless. I can know all day long, I can explain to you how that I know that I am under condemnation without Christ, and therefore, you know, I need to trust Christ, and you need to trust Christ so that we can have redemption. I can quote that to you, I can show you scriptures concerning that, but if I myself have not submitted myself by working of the Holy Spirit to the understanding that I am truly under condemnation, there's nothing I can do, and I am resting, believing, to entrust one's spiritual well-being to Christ, saying, I have nothing to offer God. I'm not trying to better myself. I can't better myself. All I can do is say, Lord, there's nothing I can do. I rest and trust in your provision for me, which is all sufficient. The Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us, first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? The statement obey not in this verse means disobedient. But disobedient is to the gospel, not the law. People have misread or misapplied this and said, okay, I've got to, got to obey the law of God. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed unto you, credited to your account. It's not something that you rack up points with God. It's not something where if I do good today, then God's going to look and say, well, good boy, you did well. No, Jesus, God the Father will only be pleased in His Son and in what His Son has accomplished, not in what we do. I've often said to you, I'll repeat again, that, and especially in, throughout our previous studies of the epistles we've gone through thus far, that uh, in Galatians, for instance, that Jesus Christ is either all-sufficient or He is not sufficient at all, but it's not, it's not both. He is either all-sufficient or He's not sufficient at all. And if he's not sufficient at all, then we are all doomed and hopeless and helpless. But because he is all sufficient, 
We don't have to add anything. Paul's saying Galatians 2.21. We actually read it this morning, or read 2.20 at least. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life which I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Paul is saying, I do not nullify. I do not, I do not cancel out the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So if, if I can do anything to hold up to God and say, here, I'm righteous, God, look at me. I have something to give you. Then Jesus died for no reason because he's not sufficient for my righteousness. So we find then that we do not frustrate the law or the grace of God. So to obey not being disobedient is not talking about the law, it's talking about the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is this horrible news first that I'm under condemnation without any hope, without any help, There's nothing I can do to better myself at all before God. Nothing. But, here's the news God provided for me in Jesus Christ, who is pleasing to the Father. God was, Isaiah uh, 53 tells us, of course, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Father was pleased to sacrifice His Son on our behalf that we might be redeemed and reconciled to Him, the hostility be removed between He and us. And so God was pleased to do this. He is pleased in His Son. He is satisfied in His work. So obedience to the gospel is not, do the law, do the law, do the law. Obedience to the gospel is, I have broken the law. There's no way for me to fix what I've done. I am inherently sinful by Adam, by nature, and Adam's lineage. Therefore, I must rest and trust in the provision of the Father on my behalf, which is Jesus Christ. Obedience to the gospel is not me attempting to keep the law. Obedience to the gospel is realizing I cannot keep the law, and I trust and rest in He who is the perfected law of God and righteousness of God, Jesus Christ. So the teaching of the gospel is not instruction to attempt to please God by one's own righteousness, which we do not possess, any more so than the godless are pleasing to the Lord. Rather, obedience to the gospel is to abandon one's own self-righteousness and to embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ in all his sufficiency. Philippians 3, 7 through 10, Paul wrote this. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And remember, we dealt with this in Philippians just months back. And that was, of course, stating that Paul's heritage or Paul's lineage, Paul's fact that he was a of Hebrews, a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, Touching the law, there was none comparing him to, to compare, comparable to him, meaning that he, you know, there was nobody who was as zealous as Paul was. In his own eyes, he states this. There's nobody like me in, in the law. Nobody, and he's saying this, not boasting. He's showing that none of that meant anything. He says, I count all things, everything I thought that I could present to God as righteousness is all nothing. It's lost. It is refuse. It is garbage. Because I have nothing to give him that is good. Then he goes on to say, I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered. Suffered here does not mean, oh, poor Paul, look what I gave up. No, he's saying I willingly forfeit the loss of all things and do count them but dung, but refuse, garbage, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Paul does not 
required for every man to know Christ as he did, to be as he was, dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus, with an insatiable desire to know the Lord and to grow in his grace and knowledge. Paul is saying, I proclaim the gospel to every man, the warning that they are under condemnation, the admonition. But also, he says, I teach them that though they are under this condemnation, that Christ is provided by God and he is all-sufficient where I am insufficient. Jesus is sufficient. But then he goes on to say, number three, present every man. The verb present means to be present or to stand, and the adjective perfect here means mature, because present every man perfect in Christ. Paul further explained the Lord had blessed the church with men who would faithfully edify the body, maturing them in the faith of the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 4, 11-13 says, Some apostles, talking about the churches, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, then verse 12 talks about four, the perfecting of the saints. Perfecting doesn't mean we become perfect in this life. It's about maturity, the maturing of the saints for the work of the ministry. If we are truly going to be performing ministry, we must have spiritual maturity within us. We must be spiritually grounded and rooted and mature for the edifying of the body of Christ. Listen, if we're genuinely going to edify one another, we must be rooted and grounded in the truth of even understanding what that means. Submitting to the Holy Spirit of God who is minister one to another as the body of Christ. Verse 13, till or until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, totally mature man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ where we become as he is. Meaning, totally conformed to his image in eternity, sin is gone, every thought of sin is gone, eradicated, now we've been conformed, we have been sanctified in time and now perfectly in eternity to be as he is because of his purity in us, not because of ours. We don't reach that point. There's no one who's ever died and at the point of death, I am totally mature and sinless and perfect and now I can go see God. Everybody dies in their sin, meaning carrying that. You, you never reach that on your own. It is the perfection of Christ. Scripture says that we, in verse 1, concerning this matter as well, Gnosticism was a problem there also, and he says that every man who hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Notice that what he says there, even as he is pure. This isn't your purity. You are recognizing his purity, therefore you are conforming to his purity, which has been given to you, his righteousness, not your own. So we are conforming to his image by his working in us, and the what I would refer to as the practical progressive sanctification in our lives. Because we are already positionally sanctified. Again, here's what I meant by that. When I die, the moment I die, I will not be perfect in this life. But the moment I literally die and am with the Lord, I am totally sanctified, glorified with Him, not yet in a body unless there's a resurrection of the dead, and I'm part of that at that moment, but at that time, I mean, in the resurrection of the dead, but yet glorified, sanctified, justified, redeemed before the Lord. By the way, does Scripture not tell us that He will present us spotless? He will present us without blemish. It, you're not doing this. He is. Let me give you, uh, concerning sanctification, let me clarify something here. It's very important. In Exodus, um, with the tabernacle and the giving of the tabernacle, which are all shadows of the truth, as Hebrews teaches us, You'll find in Exodus that 
the laver of brass, you first had the, the altar, uh, brazen altar, which is, is atonement. Then you stepped further to the laver of brass. And the laver of brass was that which the priest would go to wash their hands, their, their work, wash their feet, their walk. And they would look into this laver, and this laver was made of, of the uh, brass, which was looking glasses. It was as a mirror, if you will, of the women. They brought that. Read the scriptures, you'll see. They brought their looking glasses, which really were, were pieces of brass that were then formed into this laver of brass, and so it was very reflective. And they would look into the laver of brass, and it would reflect, and they would see themselves. And they are told that they are to wash themselves. They are to wash their hands. They are to wash their feet. But there's something that is often overlooked. Now, I think I mentioned this to you a few weeks back, but just to remind you in sanctification. When you first look at that, you may say, okay, well, they came through atonement. Now it's their responsibility to sanctify themselves. Well, yes, progressively and practically. But what you must never overlook is the chapter previous. The Lord tells Moses, his representative, to take Aaron and his sons and wash them. So God had Moses wash them before they were ever commanded to wash themselves. And that is so important because that is positional sanctification. God has cleansed us, sanctified us, washed us through his son by the presence of his Holy Spirit. But now we come to the water of the word of God and we examine ourselves and then submit to the Lord in all that is not as he is and as he desires and commands. But it's all based on us already cleansed already having been washed, as Moses did with Aaron's sons. So Paul explains in this passage of Ephesians chapter 4 that his desire is that every man will stand spiritually mature in Christ through obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul had boldly and faithfully proclaimed as he warned them of their present current condition. Verse 29, we, we finish with this. Wherefore I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Even in Paul's statement here, notice what he says. I labor, yes, I am working, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So what is Paul saying? He's saying all my labor is only because of his work in me. He is doing. Paul was committed to proclaim the gospel, warning every man, teaching every man, and presenting every man who would be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, mature in the faith. Yet... Paul conceded that it was not his work nor his ability by which men would be presented perfect in Jesus, but it was according to the working of God in him, that which God was doing. As I explained in his letter to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 15, 9-11, Paul stated this, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. He said, I worked harder than everyone else. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. The stewardship of the gospel, which is what Paul is dealing with, is the greatest of responsibilities and also the greatest of privileges one can have as a follower of Jesus Christ. God has manifested this mystery from the ages past, the gospel to the Gentiles, and he has manifested the glory of this ministry, of this mystery, Christ in you, sense of glory, and now he has stewardship of this mystery that we, as Paul, might warn, we might teach, we might present every man who will obey the gospel mature in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. When Paul talks about proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming, preaching. He's talking about the gospel, and then he breaks it down for us. Here it is. Warning every man. T- 
teaching every man, warning them of their condition, teaching them of the righteousness and holiness of God's provision in Jesus Christ, his all-sufficient provision, and then perfecting every man, discipling them and maturing them in the faith that they might grow and learn of he redeemed them. And recognize, as did Paul, I am all totally insufficient, but Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. If I am insufficient, would you agree with me? that you are insufficient to save yourself? Would you agree with me in that? If that is true, which it is, you are also insufficient to sanctify yourself. He will perfect what he has done. Now listen, let me clarify just in case you don't understand and you've missed multiple studies throughout epistles already in which these matters are dealt with. Let me explain so you have no misunderstanding. That by no means implies or infers that we are just sitting here and God's just going to do what God's going to do. Listen, if God, if, if, if the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, He is transforming you, conforming your life. Every man, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God who has given to us the ministry and word of reconciliation, he goes on to say. The point being this, a simple analogy, but I think it, it really helps us to drive the point home and helps us understand. I've said this to you before. If my mother-in-law lived with me, not only would I be absolutely aware of her presence in my house, but it would probably, to some degree, change my interactions with other people outside my house. You know, and I'm not this in ugliness of my mother-in-law. It's just the reality of what it is, right? It's going to be evident that something is different than what it was before to me personally and also probably to most people who know me. How could one possibly think that the very God of creation, the God of the universe, could dwell within their lives, within their hearts, and they not be radically transformed and also the, the evidence of his presence not be manifested among all those they interact with? point is this we do righteousness or righteously not because we are attempting to attain righteousness we do righteousness and righteously because the righteousness of jesus has been imputed unto us we are not trying to achieve something we are simply living out the evidence of what god has accomplished in us it is he working in us and through us and hence paul says in philippians 2 latter part of verse 12, verse 13, you know this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, I must say, he does not command us to work for salvation, work toward salvation, work on salvation. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Who's working in us to do this? God is. Here's the point. If you truly have received Christ, If Christ, if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. But the reality of you being in him, he being in you, will be revealed outside of you because of his presence. You are not big enough to conceal the Lord of glory. Remember, salvation, redemption is always personal. Always. But it's never private. It's never, it's public. Romans 10, 
13 through 15. Here's the stewardship of the gospel summed up by Paul in Romans. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We've already quoted the verses from which this is quoted or referenced them in Old Testament. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring good tidings of good things. Paul was given a personal, specific stewardship of the gospel. But here's the news that you need to understand. So are you. You've been given this stewardship as well. So what will we do with the stewardship of the gospel? Warn every man. Instruct and teach every man. Warn every man of his condition. Teach him of the, of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And then present them perfect. Disciple and mature them in the faith. That they too might be rooted and grounded and then minister and edify as Scripture tells us. We've been given a stewardship of the gospel. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing. It is a beautiful thing. And the point is, God says, Paul says through him, or God says through Paul, how is it that they will hear? As he quotes Old Testament, Paul explains, oh, the way they hear is that people are sent. The saints are sent. The believers are sent. So may we learn to be rooted and grounded that we might properly edify one another and properly minister the gospel to those who are in darkness. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth and the beauty of this passage of Paul to us.